Arlen Bishop, welcome back to the new school. Thanks, Michael. In our first conversation in recording this spiritual biography, we followed your evolution from a childhood in British Guiana uh, to high school in Brooklyn and college in Los Angeles, your involvement with the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, the beginnings of your integration of both an inner spiritual consciousness and an outer commitment to social justice. In the second uh, conversation we've had, we discussed uh, your encounter with Dr. Lagan, your spiritual teacher, uh, and um, uh, his uh, extraordinary work in Los Angeles, and also your encounter uh, with both theosophy and anthroposophical sciences, um, and where that led you. In a third conversation over lunch with my colleagues here at the New School, we covered many aspects of your cosmology, uh, and um, we hope that will be edited into a form that it can also stand as, as part of the record here. Um, so now we go back to the um, uh, uh, sort of historical process that we've been uh, following. Um, and uh, another significant date, uh, which we've touched on just a little bit, but uh, was your work, has been your work with Maladona, Somme, and Mosaic, uh, which we date roughly to 1993? 92. 92? 92. So your, your encounter with Alfred Ligon was in 91, and that was also the beginning of your encounter with the anthroposophical tradition yeah. at about that time, and then also with uh, Maladona Somme at that time. Let's talk a little bit about your encounter with Maladona Somme and what that evoked in your, uh, in your life. Yes. Well, Dadisi, I mentioned Dadisi, who was the one who introduced me to Dr. Logan. Mm -hmm. uh, at a conversation at Drew University, we, he told me, he said, um, I went yesterday, the day before, to a gathering at the Japanese theater in Los Angeles. And um, he said, he's, uh, Dadisi was an excellent drummer. Uh, djembe drummer, studying West African dance and drum, and he said, Orlan, you would not believe, but there were like 50 white guys playing djembe. <laughs> and he said, and they were really good. <laughs> and um, it impressed him so much that he said, they invited me to a conference in Malibu, do you want to go with me? And I said, yeah, because he was so excited. And um, so it was a men's conference that Mosaic um, was hosting in 1992, and um, so Dadisi and I drove up to the camp in Malibu, and um, I did not know anything about Mosaic or Michael's work and such, and um, it was uh, present there were um, uh, James Hillman, Robert Bly, Michael Mead, Maladoma Somme, and um, a couple others, but <laughs> they were <laughs> significant enough to create um, G gathering of 120 men. And um, 
the themes were really, of course, spe still speaking to initiation of men in the culture and, and um, storytelling, the way Michael tells stories to make it relevant to transforming our uh, thinking around um, relationships and culture. And of course, um, James Hillman bringing it to this deep psychological factor, oh, it was amazing. And um, did not know Maladoma and his work. And one of the things that, that they were good at doing is directing conflict, guiding conflict through its stages. And so uh, part of the Mosaic's practice was called Conflict Hour, where they intentionally said this period is to deal with conflicts of time. And is there any conflict? in the room. Well, <laughs> 120 <laughs> hands went up. <laughs> we all have, whether well, it's personal or, or, you know, we brought them into the room and we sit in it for hours to go through the metamorphosis of this conflict. And there was something I shared, I can't remember the details of it, um, uh, but both Michael and Maladoma came up to me after and made their comments to me about their appreciation for me having said it. But what Maladoma said to me was, um, you, speak, you, said, uh, you, you spoke from your belly when you said that. And I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and he said, well, in, in, from that region is not you just speaking. It's the ancestors speaking. And um, he just introduced himself, who he was, you know, what, what his background was in, 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 in Dagra cultural work. And later he gave me his book um, of What and the Spirit that he had just finished writing. And uh, it opened up the understanding of this elemental realm, the realm of ritual and magic in the sense of magic meaning, being able to bring meaning into um, these deeper meanings into cognition and making them relevant to reality. And so he invited me into that, that work with him. And of course, the ritual was so much part of mosaics on the tone of creating this space for, for um, at that time, men to engage the transformation of the tendency of violence and to retell our stories in a communal sense that we could actually, by after five days, leave with a sense of trust for being in the world. Now that encounter with Maladoma Somay was followed, as I understand, by two initiations in Africa, if that's correct. Um, uh, in later years. Could you talk about those two initiations? Yes. And they were more formal um, initiations in a sense. Uh, I had known Maladoma for a number of years, uh, probably that time when um, I was invited to Africa. Uh, Credamutwa had sent to us um, a recording that he made of the Zulu prophecy. And he had asked a friend, um, a student of his from Zaire, who was living with him in South Africa, and was living also in Los Angeles, to bring this recording and play it in Los Angeles. And um, 
I was invited to a friend's house to meet Kikosa and to listen to this recording from Credit Mutual. And um, we did so, and I recognize many of the things he spoke about to be consistent with my own, in my in own intention, particularly from childhood, of what I accepted as reality. And um, he called it um, the training for Inyanga. Inyanga is a Zulu word for um, warriors of the moon, people whose uh, destiny is connected to the moon sphere and the uh, initiation of this water mysteries that the moon is governing in a certain way around the earth. But it also had to do with the prophecies of the return of beings that are to enter the world again through the water mysteries, water powers. And so when I listened to this recording, I, uh, Kikosa turned to me and said, you have to go to South Africa and meet him. And when, so when Kikosa returned to South Africa, I received a call and Kredo Mutua was on the phone and he invited me to come. Now say a word about who he is. Kredo Mutua is um, a Sanusi. He, a Sanusi is a keeper of the mystery traditions and one whose initiation uh, places in consciousness the entire codex of their ancestral knowledge, uh, the lineage of which he belongs. He is the holder of all the sacred relics of the um, Zulu nation. And um, the last Sunusi, he's the last of that level of initiation. And consulted by statesmen from around the world who don't always announce that they're going to see him. Right, yeah, I mean, he has been an advisor for many of the presidents from the time of um, independence in Africa in the 60s mm -hmm. to current age. He's been consultant with many of the um, prominent uh, families and Western leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and an architect of the larger paradigm of, of African spiritual evolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's very renowned in the United States, in the world. Well, I mean, very controversial because of his acceptance of these larger paradigms of intergalactic beings and all mm -hmm. the things that he has talked about. And um, could be on the fringe of, of ideas because of a kind of explicit storytelling mm -hmm. uh, that he does about these uh, other realities. So in some cases, people think it is too much to mm. accept this truth. So you met with him? Yes. I, I traveled to South Africa, and um, my first trip, I spent five days. Mm. And um, one would have been enough. <laughs> 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 and um, in the tradition, he would open his mind to every question that I could ask, mm. because his mind at that level could reveal the answers. So we would sit in Ndaba, he and I, uh, every morning, and he would um, transfer the understanding of mm. these other questions to me. 
what he had invited me to, to enter is a deeper relationship to the prophecies that he felt were coming to fulfillment and that we needed people to prepare for this, these returners of these um, light beings. And what were the prophecies he invited you to uh, participate in? Yes. Well, we, in, in, in the age of, uh, of, of Atlantis, we human beings who had access to those um, civilizations had misused sacred knowledge. We were giving tremendous amount of, of, of powers that had to be taken back. The story that I had told from, uh, about this prophecy, this um, myth of, of Eunatius, was the result of a misuse of knowledge. And, and um, of, this, of, the, of the mysteries of light that was revealed um, many, many, many years ago. And so there was a, a prophecy that these, the mystery school could be reconstituted and human beings could begin to create in Africa a new form of mystery, whereby the, the two streams, the Rosicrucian European stream and the African stream could share a space where this ritual could be done. The Dutch Rosicrucians went to South Africa, Cape Town, to begin that process with the Zulu nation because they were the keepers of the Lumerian and Atlantean mysteries. And the work that was to be undertaken to build this mystery school um, fell, fell into disarray because of the discovery of mineral wealth that particularly that the Zulu nation had access to. These diamond mines and such were not just for you know, the kind of use that we now have been engaging. Uh, those were mostly for ritual. And mining was not something that men did. Mining was a task for women. Because only women were allowed to go into the earth. Their, their energy were naturally suited to go into the earth and return normal. Mm. Men, men go into the earth, their, their psyche is thrown off balance. Mm. So this had to do with the, the old Zulu religion that had to do with the Madonna, the black Madonna, mm. the great feminine, which then migrated through different cultures in Europe mm. as a kind of uh, ritual practice. But a feminine... The old uh, practice in Africa, the, the feminine deities were the highest. And women were given, um, so the, they had the, the king could be a male, but the queen mother was above him. All kings were governed by their mothers. The mother, the mother power in Africa was superior to all thrones in Africa because it had to do with this mystery of the earth. And particularly the King Shaka, who was king of the Zulu nation, um, uh, and his, his mother, who uh, helped him to come into his kingship, felt that he had a task of reuniting um, some of the tribal peoples, but he was also very um, angry about the fact that he was not a legitimate heir to 
I mean, legitimately in a sense of, uh, in, there were many wives and relationships in that sense. So he wasn't the one particularly chosen. And uh, so he carried the resentment of some of his upbringing. So he had a certain kind of intolerance for <laughs> um, whatever went wrong in his kingdom, including the misuse of the natural resources. Shaka had more rules over the preservation of nature than he had over the preservation of people. So his rivers were most sacred to him, his, his cattle and his lands. So people could not just settle anywhere, and this is what violated and started wars between the Dutch, the British, and the Zulu people, the misuse of the natural spaces. And as well, but who, there was a person who was advisor to, who was, he was the high priest to Shaka, who was the keeper of the mysteries, the prophecies, and um, he violated the sacred ordinance of hospitality. I see. And so the, the kingdom fell into disarray mm. because the place was designated as the site for the mm. prophetic work. So what impact on your inner evolution did this encounter with this highest Zulu priest have? What did it bring to you? What did it leave you with uh, in your own, in the evolution of the, the great streams that have come together in your experience? Well, he merged me into this... Um I shared with him the, the second myth that I've written about this um, bird sign, out of yeah. this bird sign. And I asked him, what was the seventh shrine? Did he ever hear anything about the seventh shrine? Because I'd never entered any conversation with it since then. And um, so he revealed, he said, well, you, you wrote your bird story. Hmm. And that you are here, and you've already started to do the work of the seventh shrine, hmm. which is called the shrine of Imani. Imani is a Swahili word for faith. And faith is how you prepare yourself to be able to decide for the best outcome of something. And to allow the beings of light to work into the realm of miracle. So that was what... And he said, well, the work that you're doing with the young people are already the seventh shrine. And we, there's no teacher for it, and there's no, you just kind of have to make yourself willing to do things that seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. And that these, um, particularly the, the, the high priest to Shaka who died many years ago, um, was the holder of the initiation path to cross into, um, well, being able to be received into that community of belong. So I had to wait. When I returned, I, I, I um, had to wait for the dream that will reveal that the initiation was complete. And did that dream come? That dream came. What was the dream? Well, actually, it, wasn't, it was more than a dream. It actually was in the fulfillment of a ritual I was doing uh, with a, a community um, of mediums from El Salvador. And so they were speaking. I was visiting with them, and they were speaking in Spanish, so I, I didn't still don't speak Spanish, but I was observing the ritual and um, two of the mediums, I saw them discussing and then they were looking at me and 
Then they said, well, there's a spirit standing next to you. And um, well, I said, well, I mean, that's not so much new. I know that they're always there, but who is this one? And so spiritual protocol is such that they have to ask their names. And they have to identify themselves. So they ask, and this being says, no, you're not going to get my name. Um, and they ask is there is a reason for him being there, and uh, you reveal that he was there for me to get something. And um, so they worked through this process, and he agreed that he was going to well, he's going to give the first three letters of his name. <laughs> and um, so he gave the three letters of his name, and I, uh, they, but they described how he appeared to them. And um, I thought, okay, he is Zulu. And so I should... He is. is a Zulu. Yeah. Um, the way that he was mm -hmm. appearing to them, the, the dress. It was in traditional dress. Mm -hmm. And so I, I called South Africa and um, told Credimutwa what had happened. And, um, and he just started to laugh. And, uh, and he said, you know, this is the happiest day of my life. Because this is the first um, declaration that the time for the prophecy is here. Because uh, he's crossed, he's crossed to, to reveal this. And so I asked who he was, and this is, he told me he was the high priest of Shaka. Hmm. And was the keeper of the, the highest mysteries of, of that people. And the, the star mysteries, as they are called, had to do with um, returning the sacred knowledge from these ancient civilizations that have been kept ongoing in certain African communities of memory and where it is now in relationship to the, um, the moon mysteries that is, is unfolding through the uh, current age, or you said the returning of the sacred feminine. And so is there any more you can say about what the prophecy was that was to be revealed now because of this crossing? <coughs> well, there are certain conflicts that are uh, beyond the human realm that affects us. Because again, what, what, what this old, what, in writing this myth, the conflict of um, deities above human existence are still happening. Mm -hmm. And so uh, wars from there fall into our consciousness and we then fall into conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. But there's still a conflict over human beings' right to become self-conscious. And this is something that you see as an ever-present reality in the world. In the world, yes. And in fact, uh, in other conversations we've had, you see this struggle being carried out in human blood. In the human blood, yes. <coughs> yeah. The human blood, uh, uh, naturally we receive a lot of um, spiritual forces hmm. through the blood. The realm of existence is the realm of the blood. And in, in what we call the second, the seventh shrine is the shrine of faith, but the sixth shrine is the shrine of blood. This is, this is the fundamental construct where the spiritual laws 
um, that were revealed through forms of initiation are now carried in human blood. So it is flowing already. And uh, it's almost like we will never get, we will not get anything new. It's already, the full inheritance is here. Now, how do we awake the powers of the blood to be able to restructure our light beings, our bodies, have to do with certain forms of cognition. Because we can reconstitute even a superimmunity to the degree that illness can fall into remission if we wake this etheric vitality. So different, different kinds of, of, of sciences have, have crossed that kind of insight. In 1990, um, sort of Swiss physicists that we were working with discovered that there was a cell dormant in the human blood. And through rectification, through these crystals, these life crystals that he created, it attracts free energy to the blood, dissolves the blood to its pre-genetic level, and a new kind of cell created, is created that dissolves and destroys everything foreign to the human archetype. In the and the Swiss physicist's name? George Merkel. And in fact, you worked with his therapy with various patients and so forth, or at least witnessed it. Yes. And oh. witnessed the transformation of every cancer that we've treated mm. in 12 weeks. Mm. AIDS mm. in 12 weeks. And his laboratory was then destroyed in Los Angeles, or the center where that work was being done? Well, his laboratory was in El Paso, Texas. And yes, that was destroyed, and ours in Los Angeles. Our lab, our clinic was destroyed as well. Mm -hmm. Quite mysteriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, it's probably no accident that the, the sixth... Uh, the sixth of these seven stages was uh, of these six of these what are they temples or whatever shrines. shrines was the shrine of the blood and that you worked at Drew Medical Center where this great African American scientist who studied the blood and was interested in the African traditions. Uh, was uh, incarnated in some sense, uh, uh, named in his memory. Uh, and, but his interest in these uh, higher levels of uh, the significance of the blood uh, were not recognized along with the dominant paradigm of science where he was also recognized. In other words, he was recognized for a certain aspect of his work, but not recognized for this higher aspect of the work yes. that um, um, where it seems to connect with that sixth shrine. Yes. Is this correct? Is yes. this a fair statement? Yes. But then you go on from there uh, to discover that what you had been given and the mythology that you wrote for Dr. Ligon's work uh, is then confirmed by the Zulu priest as you having written your life story. And then he uh, tells you more about what that seventh shrine is about. Yes. Okay. Yes. Hmm. Well, Drew University was, a, was the beginning of a certain aspect of initiation around the knowledge of the blood mm -hmm. for me. I, Working at Drew was a priest of 
uh, ritual practice emerging from the Congo that was then connected to Central America. So the ritual with these Salvadorian mediums that I mentioned a moment ago, having um, been in ritual with them when the Zulu elder revealed himself as a spirit, this individual was working at Drew University. Mm. And why I end up in the ritual, because he, every day he observed me and says, uh, like, one day he invited me to a conversation and says, you know, why I'm working here. And so, um, well, maybe you can tell me why you're working at Drew University. It's because Charles Drew told me to come here. Because? Charles Drew told him to uh -huh. come and work there. He had to protect and find people who could get into the ritual level of the work. When had Charles Drew died? Wow, um, I can't remember the... But was it in the 1940s or 50s, or was it earlier? Uh, around that time. It was right. around the 50s, I think. Mm -hmm. 57. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't remember the exact mm -hmm. date. Mm -hmm. But his spirit was... had. His spirit is what told this person to... Yeah. And was this the same man who introduced you to Dr. Legan and so forth? No. no. Well, Dalisi was, was working at Drew as well. Yes, right. So at, at the university were all these people who, who second practice mm -hmm. <laughs> had you know, this spiritual edge mm -hmm. to it. So th they had their day job and then the ritual work. And uh, so the, the, um, Eugene Espinosa was the... Um, uh, head of a spiritual house in Los Angeles from El Salvador that was working directly with this African tradition. I see. And um, they were working through the, um, the idea of blood ceremony, meaning tied, tied directly to ancestors, but through this form of mediumship, that, that the spirits of their ancestors take possession of their physical body. Hmm and come in and communicate with people. So uh, that, that form of initiation was, was open to me. They, they uh, through certain, uh, we did, we called investigations were done. And they asked uh, permission to do an initiation with me to work with the ancestral spirits. Mm. And particularly the power, the spirits of the place, because mm. Um, I had to now cross into that relationship to Los Angeles and the American continent. Um, and so when my ancestral spirits came to the ceremony, um, they prescribed another form of ritual that was not the ritual um, initiation rites that this tradition is based on. Because they said they couldn't change my path. Mm -hmm. I can receive what they may want to offer, but it has to be done this way. So these spirits actually told them another form of ritual to do, and we did that. Uh -huh. And that was to become a Tata in Ganga, or priest of the dead. And what did that mean? that those ancestors who have died in a certain way that still want to now, uh, for us to be clear about what they have given to the world, what they will be given to the world, 
that I will be open to knowing. Mm -hmm. But also I will be able to perceive those who are dying, like in this gang conflicts, to do something with that energy mm -hmm. and their transformation, their healing. Mm -hmm. And so that started, um, this was in 1996, and actually the first spirit presence that came right after, well, two or three days after my initiation, was on Tupac Shakur, who was a well-known hip-hop artist, assassinated and killed in Las Vegas. And he appeared at my shrine, and I worked with him for a few days. And what did he want? Um, want to be seen, mm -hmm. and to uh, what, how, how the rich or the shrine works is that the, it's a kind of light. The, 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 they see you as a bearer of light, so they can find you wherever mm -hmm. you, the valence of your energy mm -hmm. will confine you. And um, so different beings would come, but I recognize him because he's mm -hmm. Tupac. <laughs> Yeah. So it was a, a, a also a, a privilege to understand what hip hop is. What is hip hop? Uh, a form. One form of it is music. The other form is cognition to be able to enter into the higher spheres. Hmm. It's it's um, a creativity that if the mind follows it lawfully. Um, they will bring a new agreement into the world. Hmm. It's a form of initiation. And that was his intention? That was his intention. He just didn't get any, the right guidance at the right time mm -hmm. for, for it. There's some who are still true to their practice of it um, in different, different groups that I've met um, who originated the art form in the United States. But it... Hip-hop, or music in particular, precedes the science. So the, the music comes first, then the scientific cognition comes after. And you've said that in the African tradition, both in Africa and in the United States, uh, as we were talking last night, that the, the power of music and the initiation is enormous. And that has still been the initiation of human culture. Music yes. all over the world yeah. is a form of preserving um, this harmonics that is in the higher worlds mm -hmm. through preparing human beings to be obedient to the science of change. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, um, music has been protecting us from a lot of serious crises because mm -hmm. it's what brings people together more than anything else. Mm -hmm. and the, two most significant transformational civil society initiatives, Live Aid, mm -hmm. and um, these are concerts to bring attention to, to, mm -hmm. to the first major globalization of philanthropy mm -hmm. in a way that you know, still is the way people mm -hmm. bring this impulse to, to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, now, all of these things coming together in this period, 1991 to 1995, a period of very intense uh, um, confluence 
of events. But uh, a very specific encounter that was to change your life that we haven't spoken about was your encounter with a young man named Lazar. Please tell us about Lazar. Today, as we before we began this conversation, these roles were brought. He walked into the room with these roses. Hmm. I like to say a poem that I wrote um, when he died. And before I speak about him. The rose comes not alone, but with its thorns also, and I must accept that. For the beauty of the rose, I'll take the thorns also. For the softness of its petals, I'll embrace the thorns also. For the potency of its fragrance and the variety of its hues, I'll take the thorns also. For without the rose, without the thorns, I, for without the thorns, the rose is not complete. And without the rose, neither am I. I'll take the thorns also. Lazar was an extraordinary artist that lived in a world that never really became real to him, realized, lived for a certain kind of future. And he was a builder of floats for the Tournament of Roses parade. <laughs> and he knew the name of every flower you can imagine. And uh, I met him as a young man. Um, I was still, was of my age, was just four years difference in our age at the time. And I was at a jazz club in area of Los Angeles, a cultural space, Limert Park, at a club called um, World Stage, with some jazz music one night. And after it ended, I was walking out, and a young man came up to me and said, can I borrow $10? And I looked at him. <laughs> 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 borrow $10? He said, I can. If you ever, uh, it was so strange, like if someone says, can you give me some money? But for a stranger to say, can I borrow something? <laughs> was meant that we had to start a relationship <laughs> to be paid back. And um, so he began to explain, like, I, I needed from, you know, to get some gas for my car, and I would pay you back. And I looked at him, OK, I'll give you $10. But like, I'm, I'm not expecting to be paid back. So he said, here's my number, call me, and I'll 
make arrangements, we'll get your money back to you. So I, th I thought, oh, this is Los Angeles, you know, and I'll never see this. And it does not matter anyway. So I put the number in my pocket and walked off. <laughs> he left. And a few days later, I was just, it was keep keeping, is this number real? <laughs> is there somebody who can keep their word? And I wanted to. So I called the number, and he answered. And I began to, I became so humbled that a stranger can borrow something to you and come back and be there to give it back. And I began, like, who is this person? So he told me he's an artist, and he wanted me to see his paintings and his work, and could I come to, at that time he lived in Pasadena. And I said, yes, I would come. My brother and I went there, and um, he wasn't home. So we waited a little while, and I said, okay, this is too much. <laughs> so um, somehow we talked again, and he said, I'm sorry, I got delayed in work. Can you come back? So we drove back another day, and he wasn't there. And this time my brother said, well, do you want to, why don't you wait? Um, and I will go and do something and come back and get you. So I agreed to, agreed to wait, and um, he drove up. And he said, uh, could you wait here? I have to go and pay a bill. I'll be right back. So he opened his apartment, let me in, and I'm sitting there. And an hour went by, and he's not back. And I'm, I have to leave because I'm now getting nervous. I'm in somebody's house. I don't know whose house. <laughs> he has keys to it, obviously. But um, then he came back with, with drinks and pizza and just excited that I was there and started to show me this work. And I, be, I began to observe him. I became interested. Why would somebody have so much trust, so much? But it would start something for me from that point uh, a conversation about, particularly about his work in Tournament of Roses. He wanted me to be his business partner and help him develop his work. And I said, I don't do business. That's not my, my thing. I tried to introduce him to my brother who was more interested in art and business and such. And they started a conversation. And 1992, um, uh, Lazar came to my home. He was a little bit, actually, right before the, the LA riots came to my home and told me he had a, a drug problem that he needed help with. And if he could stay at my home until he gets some help, he would appreciate that. But what I learned is that he had run up a huge debt with these drug dealers, um, thousands of dollars, and they were looking for him, and they wanted their money. And he had basically had misused his business. Um, with this addiction, didn't know how, I didn't know how, how, how much it was. And so I, I told him, well, yeah, you better stay here. And um, Then what happened is that over time, you staying there, I was still going to work at Drew and, and going to school, and I observed that he was physically ill. And one day, he really had difficulty breathing. And I took, put him in the car and took him to the emergency room. And um, they 
uh, checked him into the hospital and I, I left um, because they had to do a number of tests for him and got a call late in the night from the doctors saying, well, there's some tests we want to do, but he's refusing unless you um, agree to it. So they put me on the telephone and I told him, I said, these people are trying to help you. You should, you know, let them work with you. So this is at Martin Luther King Hospital right across the street from Jew University. So I knew, knew the, some of the people at the emergency room. And so he agreed that he would allow to do the test. And what they wanted to do was an HIV test. And they, I picked him up the following morning and they told me he, he needed to come back for a consultation two or three days later which I took him back and he went into the consultation room and when he came back he was crying. And he looked at me and asked, am I going to die? And I felt the, I felt the beginning of something that I couldn't explain um, because the question was, I know I'm going to die. How am I going to live with this thought? So we, we I took the afternoon off and we went up to the um, Yogananda Center on the Pacific Coast uh, Self-Realization Fellowship. They have a beautiful park and we sat there and we began to talk. He began to tell me his life story at a deeper level. And he got this HIV positive test result. And um, I now begin to see the complexity of, of what it was beginning to change, and he was staying at my home, and um, I began to get all of these um, you know, questions from people. Why would I have someone with AIDS staying at my home? And all this is still at a time when people still had to carry such strong prejudices with this. And, but it was also becoming difficult, not just the, um, the, the, the AIDS health care but the drug problem was still persisting and he would go out to Hollywood and binge on drugs and then I would get a call to come and pick him up and so it was hard and I'll tell you it was the hardest three years of my life to be in that relationship of moving between this question of whether I can do this one more day or not and every time I was just about to give up this is the last day I'm going to do this. Um, this light comes in and restores my faith and trust and belief. But I also felt that he, he was honest. He was so honest to the degree that he was vulnerable to things that I thought he was naive about and this drug use. And he did not have the physical strength to overcome the habit. And um, then we, so he went into drug rehab several times and came out and relapsed. And um, remember one night I told him a story of this crow that would um, was so ravenous it ate everything it saw. And the crow had gone up to the to a lake and see its shadow and was looking over thought its shadow to be food and the shadow came out and ate the crow. And I told him, and he, he thought it to be so interesting that he, that he took it in. Um, and around 
1994, December of 1994, he was in hospice care. And I walked into the room to spend time with him, and he was asleep. And I thought, okay, I'm going to leave and come back when he was awake because uh, I didn't want to wake him up. And as soon as I was turning to leave, I heard his voice said, uh, you better do what you're here to do. And I turned around and looked at him, and he was still sleeping. And so I said, uh, what did you say? And I'm now looking at him. <laughs> and he spoke. You heard me. You better do what you're here to do. And I'm now, like, really puzzled. How could he speak from sleep? And so I asked, well, what am I here to do? And he said, don't play games with me. <laughs> you know what you're here to do, and if you don't do it, you will regret it. And uh, it was like a command. It was something beyond. And so I took a chair and put it by the bed, and I sat there asking myself, what am I here to do? Because <laughs> no, I'm afraid not, to not remember this. And my mind began to change. It began to alter. And this, these heart forces began to truly permeate my will. And I sat there maybe over two hours. And he woke up, he opened his eyes, and he looked at me. And then like if he remembered what we were talking about. He said, um, if you go back, they won't understand what you have to do. And they don't know the kind of doctor that you're supposed to do, be. They don't know the kind of doctor you're supposed to be. And... Um, I, I realized in a moment that my work had to change, or I had to change, and I had to make room in my heart for knowing something that um, would become a different kind of future. So I resigned from medical school, I resigned from the aspiration of being a medical doctor. I, had, I was on the verge of two degrees that was you know, nine and a half years of college of practice went into this kind of freedom of not pursuing it. Now, of course, my family and friends and every teachers, why would you give up all of this? Um, but it was a compulsion. It was true. And so that was December of 94, and uh, in the month from 90, December to, to January, it would be a, a total transformation of everything for this impulse of the shrine of Imani, of being in the faith of service of something. And the Lazar died in January of 1995. And... Um, opened up uh, my perception to staying with him through different stages of his death. And one of the things he asked me before he died, he said, uh, I would like you to decide if I can't make medical decisions for myself, whether I should live or not. And I thought, to tell, I said to him, well, you tell me what you want, and I'll just make sure we honor that intention. And he said, no. I want you to choose. 
And I felt um, that it was a reality far beyond my knowing to choose for something. But it was a, an agreement that I felt was so true that if I choose it, I wouldn't be violating anything. Whatever I chose, it, would, it is fine with him. And that permission changed my life. That agreement changed everything. And um, it started a process of study in, of geomancy. Because when I went to purchase his burial plot after he died, um, in fact, one day, I was have to share this little piece. One day after um, uh, uh, going into hospice to, before he died, uh, he was again in the state of directing his funeral of where he wanted to be buried. And, and he was just saying, don't bury me under the tree. Well, in the last couple of months, I learned to really pay attention and after my experience, everything he said, because I, I was just interested in what is happening in this last phase of his life. And he said, don't bury me under the tree, um, bury me in this other place and such. And there was no, nothing to tell me what that means. So I was just listening to it and keeping it in mind. And, but when I went to purchase the burial plot for him. Um, the attendant drove me out and she said, well, there's only two spaces left in this area where he wanted to be buried. And she drove right up to a tree <laughs> for the first one. And I just started to laugh. And she looked at me like, what are you laughing about? And I said, he doesn't want to be buried under the tree. <laughs> and so we, we chose this other space. But what I'm saying geomancy-wise is that, that the space became a portal for communicating with him. And the, and the space he chose, without knowing, was very close to a, a relative of his? His mother, actually. His mother. his mother had been buried. So the space that he chose was very close to his mother. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. And um, her, her, she died of cancer, and she, her, her last thing spoke speaking to me was... Um, a request that I be his friend and mm -hmm. that he would need me. Mm -hmm. So she had also cognized something about his, mm -hmm. his life needs. And, and one experience when we were again in hospice, this, this last month was a remarkable month, mm -hmm. from December to, to January, in which um, he asked me for some tissue, to bring some tissue. So I brought it, the box of tissue and he took some out and he was drying the eyes of someone right above his bed. And I'm looking at him, and then he started to speak. He said, Mom, I know you remember Erlen. <laughs> I want you to continue to help his work, and when I come there, I'll help you. And they were talking with each other, and I'm listening to his speech of it, that she was now there and preparing him for his transition. And different things he would do, uh, sometimes sleep for two days and then wake up, and they would tell me about the other realities that he'd gone through and come back. So anthroposophy and theosophy became real. It became a conversation with someone who was living in those dimensions of thought and uh, helping me to bridge them through um, experiences 
particularly of the heart, because I cognize it inwardly that they were true, what he was sharing. And uh, so when, after he died, um, a month later, Shaitri was founded. I, uh, I stepped completely, even resigned from my job at Drew, and um, uh, stepped fully into mm. the availability of this faith impulse. And when we return, Orland, let's pick it up right there for our final part of this conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Michael.